0: Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, it's a genuine delight to have Patty Hatter as my guest. Patty, Senior VP for Global Customer Services for Palo Alto Networks. Patty, welcome. Thank you, Marcus. Glad to be here. Excellent. Patty, would you mind giving the audience 90 seconds on your history and how you got to where you are? <laughs>
1: how I got to where I am so uh you know kind of a uh, traditional and non-traditional journey so I'm an engineer by training two engineering degrees from a pretty technical school started out my career which was the best way to get started in AT&T Bell Labs had I attribute uh, most of my success to my very first manager that I had, who gave me a ton of opportunities and actually was the person that sent me. I was just a baby starting out in the workforce, and he gave me an opportunity to go go to Europe, start a business. I ended there, ended up being there six years living in Amsterdam and uh, London, just an incredible experience to get started in your career, really understanding how do you listen to customers, the importance of listening to customers. It's all about listening to customers. And uh, that's uh, stuck with me. So with AT&T, Bell Labs, then AT&T Solutions, very external building business roles, and then uh, actually for something completely different moved to uh Cisco in driving some of their internal transformations in the early 2000s when the company was rebuilding after the implosions that that uh, happened in the uh in 2000 2001 2002 so that was a big shift within Cisco so that was a really eye opening opportunity and actually it it gave me the chance because when i was at AT&T I was running the organization that was driving services, driving solutions to customers. And our biggest technology partner was Cisco. So I felt what it was like being on the, on the uh, technology partner side with Cisco. And one of the roles I had once I moved to Cisco was, how do we make it easier for partners to, <laughs> to deal with the uh, company? So it was interesting to be on both sides of the same uh, coin there. After six or so years, six or seven years at uh, Cisco, I had the opportunity to go to McAfee, which the cybersecurity space, we could talk about that for a while. Very interesting part of the whole IT stack, but that gave me the opportunity to go in a bit of a different uh, direction where among other roles, I was our CIO. And uh, one thing we could talk about is, for CIOs I think that's that's a great job for technology leaders to have because then you really understand what it's like to use all the stuff people are trying to sell you so it's the best job to have had in your past very challenging you know everybody's issue is uh, your issue but that was a a great role to have I moved back in in McAfee and and now at uh, Palo Alto Networks, back to my uh, services roots. And that's what uh, has me leading the uh, services organization. So everything post-sales at uh, Palo Alto Networks now.
0: So that's a pretty varied background. And one of the things I tend to look for myself is people with a generalist background and then operating in a very specialist field. Because I think having that different perspective, that international flavor, understanding the different role functions, being able to see things through both the eyes of the buyer and the seller and the partner, gives you a a breadth of experience, but also a wider picture. And I interviewed Juliana Vida. I don't know if you know her from uh, Splunk, Chief Technical Advisor. So she was a combat pilot for 13 years in the Navy. And then she became assistant CIO at the Pentagon for the Navy, then Gartner. And now she's advising Splunk salespeople on how not to butcher the sale. (laughs) I think what's really interesting is how important it is to see the world through as the customer, not thinking about them, but thinking as them. Tell me about that CIO role and what you brought out of it now that you're in customer services, and customer success. Uh,
1: You know, Marcus, to your point around really relating to your customers, I could not agree more. I think that is a a real opportunity for most sales organizations. It seems so obvious, but it's just not what happens a lot of the times. And one of the stories that I I still reflect on a lot from my uh, CIO role, When I first took over that role, we had a variety of technology challenges going on. And one was a, uh, we had to do an ERP, a full ERP upgrade in nine months. So this emergency and ERP upgrade is something you don't want to hear in the same sentence. And that was like, welcome, Patty, to your new job. Here you go. And that was just one of the crazy things that we had to do. And, uh, you know, I won't mention the, the name of the uh, vendor, but our, the vendor that we had obviously knew our situation and could have really taken us to the cleaner. And the, the lead salesperson that we had from, from the vendor is like, Patty, we are here for you. I remember, I can hear the conversation in my head. She's like, I've got you. We've got you. We will get you through this. Do not, we're here for you. We are here for you. We will get you through this knothole. And to this day, everything she said she, she it was a very large company behind her. She had a lot of work that she had to do on her side to deliver the resources to let us d- do what we had to uh, do. But to this day, whenever she calls, I will take that call. If she needs anything, I'm there to help her because it was such a clear Good and bad, you know. She could have been the angel or the devil in 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 that scenario, and you know, I think that's the opportunity for for salespeople to to really think about: of could she have made maybe ten percent more? Like screwed us to the wall on some of the pieces that we had to buy. Yeah, she could have, but she took a she made very good margins for her company through that. But she took an approach of we're going to partner through this very difficult time and i will forever remember that and there are other situations with other technology vendors when i was buying again not to mention company names that were the complete opposite of that where you're almost having to pay blood money to <laughs> like get out of contracts and i you know those people call me those sales folks that i had to work with then call me and it's like You're heir to me. I'm
0: just, you know, the trust is so forever broken. And this is critical to understand. If you do not understand that in our world as salespeople, the only currency we really have are trust and influence, the money, when you're in an emergency in nine months trying to implement a refresh of your ERP, you are caught between a rock, a very hard rock and a very (laughs) hard place. And everything, your career could have come to a grinding halt. And the salesperson partnered with you. And I want people to pay attention to this because I'm sick and tired of listening to salespeople acting as if the customer exists for our convenience. Uh, We exist to serve them. (laughs) Uh, We exist to serve them. And it's our uh, responsibility to partner with them. Forget the transaction. The transaction is a tiny part of the sale. And in fact, in my book, it's the least important, although finance and private equity and your bankers and your managers will tell you otherwise. Because what you don't do, I mean, what Pat, uh, what Patty got there was a, a life, was uh, she became a lifelong customer. If that salesperson came to you, not only would you take her call, but you would treat, you would put her at the top of the pile, fair? Completely, completely, absolutely. And,
1: and it's, It was so simple, but it was, she was, in my whole CIO experience, she was the only one that that treated, and it was such a crazy situation. She could have so easily tried to to nickel and dime a few more dollars and make a little bit more money that year.
0: Okay, so let me ask you this. How many salespeople did you meet in that role? Too many. Well, here's another thing that I would do, because you'd
1: have crazy situations where sales folks would so artificially try to influence me. Like I wasn't born yesterday, but I'd have salespeople like, well, if I can just get to Patty, I can try to push her or like shove her to make this decision. It's like people, if you're a CIO, you did not just you were not just born yesterday you have some good thoughts and you have some clarity of what you're what you're going to do what i ended up doing a lot of was really forcing vendors through a clear rfp process of like technically what what is it that you guys bring to the table what products what skill sets let's try to get more of an apples to apples comparison and not oh, you think you took me to dinner to a nice restaurant? Not, you know, I, I, well, before the whole COVID thing, I eat out too much anyway. You know, I don't need another dinner or another glass of wine. It's, you know, what can you actually do? What skills, technology, global weight can you bring to the table? So I would push the conversations there and not get involved until closer to the end just so I could cut out the the hope that companies had of influencing on a non-value-added basis. So let's
0: take the example of the great saleswoman, okay? What was it that she did to listen? How did she stand out in terms of how she listened to you? (laughs) It's so simple. She just
1: said, I'm here for you. Okay. I don't know you, but when we were first in this situation, because literally I got the job the next week, it was clear we were in this situation. So this, I didn't have an opportunity to get to know her. Can I trust her? But it's like, okay, we've got to start to work together because hopefully this goes okay. And Continuing with her and her company was my best option if that was going to work. And the thing that I judged pretty quickly was in the first sets of interactions, what she said she was going to do, the resources that she said she'd deliver, did she deliver them? And to a T, she did. Because a lot of times you have to make a pretty snap judgment on can I trust this person? Are they really doing what they, can they really do what they they said? And those first few interactions, you say something and then you deliver it, at least for me, maybe I'm different, but I don't think so. That's what said it. It's like, you are making this happen and I can trust what you're telling me.
0: In life, you are known by the promises you keep, not the ones you make. And yes. you sell by listening and asking insightful, effective questions. You do not sell by turning up, vomiting a bunch of product or, or worse, company. <laughs> and how many times have you had to sit through a presentation where they tell you, they show you a photograph of their headquarters? I mean, why, why would anybody do that to anyone else? I, I remember meeting um, a prospect once, and he uh, fired up, um, this was back in 2005, I think, so you know, video screens and all of that um, you know, tied to computers was a rare thing, and he couldn't wait to show me all this tech. And he started doing this presentation. And after the third slide, I said, "Can I stop you there? Do you mind if I ask you a cheeky question? Do you ever do this to prospects?" "Oh yes," he said. Why? <laughs> anyway, he stopped doing that, and he ended up becoming CEO because we we helped him outperform everybody by a country mile. <laughs> and, the the key thing here is you need to remember that the person on the other side of the desk is a human being. Now, I I have a real bee in my bonnet about this. Why do companies invest so much money in marketing automation and sales enablement technologies that dehumanize the whole process and make them terribly efficient but not effective? What's that all about?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think it ends up being a. I mean, some of it can be helpful, but it ends up being a crutch, and lets people think that they don't have to make that connection with the companies that that they're trying to sell to. Because in the end, that's the that's the key
0: goal, or should be the key goal. What I see is that too many transactional salespeople are out there in the market, and they see the prospect as a. An organic ATM machine rather than as a living, breathing, hu- uh, sentient human being. And they also forget that in corporates, in enterprise sales, you have a huge committee. If you're selling to people of over, you know, companies of over a thousand people, they're probably going to be a minimum of seven influencers. And we're mm-hmm. seeing coverage of less two or fewer in most enterprise deals. Again, what's going on there? What, why is it salespeople haven't cottoned on to the fact? That there's a collective experience with a lot of symptoms that are being manifested together because there's a cause in terms of the problem, um, but they're not doing their job. Why, why do they still do this? Why are they allowed to do this? One of the things I see is, and this
1: is this is where you know I really believe if you're in a technology company trying to sell to CIOs, it might seem like a diversion to have, take a role that's inside an IT organization. But until you've really lived in there, you can not understand sort of the different personas, how the budgets go, how the the CIOs and CISOs are trying to manage the the budget pressures that they have, the trade-offs that get made that aren't, you know, (laughs) maybe everybody doesn't understand how that happens. But I always see... In most cases, sales folks, look technology sales folks looking at like a big pot of money and not understanding how it gets divided up and how you have different fiefdoms, different centers of gravity within IT, and then different personas of different users within each of those groups. And, you know, those are all the different influencers. And you have to be able to give reasons for all those personas, all those different buying centers, reasons to buy your product. And that means you have to know something about them or why would they trust you? And I think things get, one thing I over the evolution over the past few years as more companies have pushed workloads to cloud and workloads to, to uh external SaaS applications. There was kind of a, a theme, a theme within IT organizations of this will all be simpler. This will be simpler now because we're we're just going to public cloud and a lot of SaaS applications. In a weird way that's made things, that's made IT organizations, their architectures even more complex because you're you have like even more external companies involved now when you look at all the SaaS applications. Most people, when they're going to the cloud they have they want to rely on a couple different cloud providers and not just put all their eggs in in uh, one basket and then they still have legacy apps on their own data centers. It's even more complex, and if you're trying to sell into that, you really have to understand at least attempt to understand the motivations of why did i t organizations sort of get it to that place and how do you help Drive all those integrations because now you have your data. If you're an IT organization, you have your data everywhere. It's floating through hundreds of SaaS apps sitting in multiple cloud providers. Manage that. It's a different type of complexity than what people were dealing with five years ago, but it's almost
0: uglier. You know, it's almost more complex now in a certain way. What people forget is every organization, every company is now an IT company. They happen to recruit. They happen to sell furniture. They happen to <laughs> be a healthcare provider. Uh, but they're all IT companies. And what I think people have, have not really got to grips with is that IT is now a profit center. Historically, it's often been seen as a cost center, but it should be a profit center, like compliance, Compliance should be a profit center. HR should be a profit center. But unfortunately, I think there's this tradition of thinking of all of the non-sales and marketing departments as just their sunk cost. The other thing that we have to remember is that as technology has become more complex, in the security stack, there could be 20 providers. In the sales and marketing stack, there could be, I saw an organogram of, one of my prospects, Martech and sales uh, enablement, and they've got something like 25 different technologies just in that. Uh You are a bit player. If you're a vendor, you are almost irrelevant because you could be interchanged for something else, whether you're the CRM provider or you're the uh, marketing automation or whether you're the email security. You're just one part of that entire machine. And if you're trying to sell your stuff, And you don't understand the relationship that your partners have at a strategic level with the CIO, with the board, you are pretty much irrelevant. Why is it that still, in spite of the level of complexity and the burgeoning, you know, the explosion in cloud, so many vendors are still trying to sell their point solution direct, and they're almost ignoring their partners. And they're not really, they certainly aren't treating them as partners. They're treating them like a get out of sales free card. Why is that happening? You have so many points in there. So let
1: me let's get to the partner thing. But if I could make a comment on the uh, on the uh, boards, because I've been on Please. on three public company boards to date. Certainly presented to a bunch of boards. Helped companies present to their boards. In other cases, and and here's what I've seen. In general, historically, boards are challenged to deal with their CIOs. Because when you look at most of the folks on boards, they're not, they didn't grow up through the technology world. They tend to be CEOs or ex-CEOs or, or CFOs, ex-CFOs. And it's just been more recently that more technology types have been getting onto public company boards. Because if if you haven't ever had that kind of background on Driving technology enabled transformation in your company, you can't even relate to what the CIO is telling you. It's just like throwing jello up against the wall. It just, you can see it rolling, <laughs> rolling, rolling down because you don't have any life experiences that relate to what this person's saying. So if you're a board member, these are very bright people and they're not used to having to have conversations that they have no context for. So they don't really wanna have them. So you see a lot of CIOs kind of get, I can't relate, at least historically, it's definitely getting better. But if I were to characterize who's the one person that boards wanted to talk to less over the past few years than their CIO, that would be their CISO. Because there's (laughs) even less context for, what is this cybersecurity space? I kind of read about it in the, in the wall street journal, seems like a thing, but who are these people? What are they, you know, how to just tell me that I'll be okay. I just want somebody to to tell me in a red, yellow, green, I just want to see greens tell me it's okay. And there's, it's getting some somewhat better, but there is a shoot the messenger still thing that goes on with the, with uh, CSOs and boards, because it is, I mean, until you really wrap your mind around it, it is hard to get your mind around the concept of, you could be presenting to a board, and while you're presenting and saying everything's okay, your company could be.
0: <laughs> could <laughs> well, be under would, attack. I've done quite a bit of work in cyber, and what we found is that on average, by the time an attack is triggered, the hackers have already been in Uh, your email system, and all over your organization for 176 days on average. And you see this, this is a huge issue around governance, uh, it's around reputation, it's a marketing issue. And I I think what people don't really understand is the critical nature of getting your IT right, your security right, because everything in your organization depends on it. And it's scary because a lot of these people... Mm -hmm come from backgrounds, like you said, where they are ignorant of what technology is capable of. And what what I see so many salespeople in tech doing, and I'd like to come back to the partner piece again in a second, is they try and sell technology. No one in the history of humanity has ever woken up and said, you know what I really want is a new router. I've waited my entire life to get the latest HP server. It just doesn't happen. So stop selling technology spend time understanding the human beings, understand their strategy. What is it they are trying to achieve? Why are they trying to achieve it? What is holding them back? And spend time in conversation with them as human to human, not as vendor to ATM machine. <laughs>
1: <laughs> to that point though, I, will, I completely agree. And one of the things, so I've been at Palo Alto a year now, and one of the things that we had done with our professional services team—the the first half, the the first two quarters—I was there. Was the team really drove a very successful, complete transformation of how we had the our professional services SKUs that yeah. customers were seeing, that sales folks were selling, and. The team did a phenomenal job moving that from very well. Here's a skew for one day, for five days. It was all time based. And to your point, like how does a customer know I need five days of this skill set? You know, it's imp- it's impossible to tell. And we transformed it to completely outcome based, ah, skews, if you will. So it's like you can go to a price list, and here are the outcomes depending on what you need, depending on where you are with the different technologies that you have, and depending on the skill sets that you have within the customer. And you know, I have to say we received a little bit of pushback during the transformation, the middle of the transformation, of to the point of, Patty, are you insane? Who would get this? You know, this is why are you doing this? I'm like, trust me, if you're trying to consume this, you're gonna much easier consume Somebody asking you, "Hey, what do you need? Where are you trying to get to?" And we can get, we can give you surefire packages to get from A to B, if you want to go to B, or if you want to go to F, A to F. Here's another pack, it, and it it gives them the reliability, the the assurance of, "Hey, hey, the, these guys are really in here. They understand where I'm trying to get to," and it has taken off like wildfire. 98% growth in professional services in Q4. I love that number. And I attribute that whole thing to the, the transformation of going from like internally weird focused how we were selling those services to outcome-based services that relate
0: to how customers want to buy. And this is absolutely critical. Buyers buy for their reasons, not your reasons. They give a damn about your target, your quota, what your investors want. What they care about is, can you help me fix my problem? And can you help me move away from my pain to my better future? And salespeople, again, get fixated on the pain, or they get fixated on feature and benefit, which is of no interest. That's just your data. And we know that no one believes anything that comes out of a salesperson's mouth. So again, without putting too fine a point on it, my favorite acronym here is STFU. Shut up. Listen. (laughs) okay? You sell with your ears. You don't sell with your gob. And pay attention. <laughs> pay real attention. You know, attention is a currency. You pay attention. And coming back to your original story, that salesperson created a massive credit in the emotional bank yes. account that's lasted yes. an entire lifetime, okay? Yes. Uh, if she was in trouble and, you know, she had something that you could uh, buy, and chances are you would probably do her a favor. And here's the, here's
1: the favor sales folks always want from their technology purchasers. It's the end of quarter. I need you to buy something else. Or you were going to buy something next quarter, I need you to pull it in. If a salesperson I didn't know, and there wasn't that you know, bank account of trust that the salesperson had already invested in, and I get one of those calls, which I had in my CIO role. It's like, how cheeky are you? You know, you, <laughs> you have nothing to do with with me, our company. You've like not invested anything in us. And you're like, hey, my quarter end, TikTok, could you stay late and like try to finagle this signature? I'm like, no.
0: And and no, like hard. No. Well let, let me ask you this. When you were ready to buy, did you expect to get that discount that they offered you before the end of the quarter as well? Of course. Oh, I'd argue about that all the time. So stop doing it, you idiots. What on God's earth are you doing? (laughs) Basically, telling a prospect that you're making so much margin that you can afford to give it away at the end of a quarter, but you're just encouraging them to ask you for discounts. Why would you give away all that profit? You know how hard it is to generate the meetings in the first place, and then how hard it is to generate profit. Why are you giving it away, moron? Okay, um, so let's get back in, to the problem. In,
1: but in most teams, the the sales teams have no incentives to to hold on to that margin. They're not tied to that at all. So it gets at the crux of all this is are some metrics
0: challenges of what's okay. really driving sales teams absolutely we'll come back to measurement and metrics in a second let's talk about the channel Uh okay one of the fundamentals that uh, fundamental problems i see the way vendors treat their partners is most vendors are really crap partners themselves they're awful as partners they're not set up to be partners they don't understand partnering my definition of a partner is uh, people who help each other get better you co-develop solutions you work through difficulties, you help each other out you 're challenging it uh, doesn 't mean it 's all uh, better roses. Um, you know, there are quite a few thorns in there. You have to hold each other to account uh, before you become partners. You need to make sure that you 're compatible before you put a ring on their thing. make sure that you know, 've got a prenup in place who keeps the kids in the event of a divorce? Will they let you train their salespeople as if they are your own? But what I see so often is that Vendors go out, and they try and recruit this land army of partners, most of whom are conscripts who produce next to nothing. I don't know whether it's a (laughs) single What we teach our clients to do is build a special forces unit. I don't know if you're familiar with something called prices law. Prices Mm -hmm. law states that 50% of your production will come from the square root of the number of people in your organization. So if you have 10 salespeople, three of them will produce 50%. If you have disties, 10 will produce 50%. If you have 10,000 partners, 100 will produce 50%. And I've yet to see a single organization in 17 years where that has not been the case. Why Mm -hmm. are you spending all that time going out and recruiting these deadbeat partners who produce nothing, suck up your resource, eat up your marketing development fund, drain your scarce technical resources on duck shoot demos, asking for discounts? Yeah, you know, in this rush to uh, register deals and all of that crap. And then you complain about your channel. Look in the mirror. You have a lot of points in there. You know, I'll go back to
1: metrics misalignment because there are folks in a lot of channel organizations and a lot of technology companies that are there incentivized. Their metric is, hey, I need to go from X to 2X the number of partners that I can say we've, we've signed up. Okay, you bring on that long tail. And then another part of the organization is trying to figure out how to activate that long tail of people that I completely agree. I would even say in general it's worse than the 50% rule. I I go with the you know 80-20. But if everybody was trying to get to a, a real a an, a business outcome that made sense and you work backwards and didn't just sort of roll nonsensical metrics from one year to the next but really said okay what are we trying to get to and how do we work everything back to get to that outcome and not just well this is how we did it before this is how we did it before i know it's frightening to like tear up the the playbooks but in a lot of cases that's that's what's going to get you a different result otherwise you're just rowing in the same lake doing the same thing and you'll get maybe nominally you'll work really hard and get maybe nominally different results and if I might put in a pitch for people and, and not just sales but including sales, people willing to radically do something different and kind of put it all out on the, the uh line because when I look at you know as you mentioned, I have a pretty varied career, which i find I've found very amusing, so i I do jobs that that I like and they'll learn something different instead of just the same thing the same thing but one of the things that i find with folks is they get stuck in a rut doing the same thing and then it's like well i don't want to take the personal risk of ripping up that playbook and doing something different because then my neck's really out on the line for that and i would just encourage folks of why are you working if you're not willing to take some level of risk because otherwise you really, on a good day, the level of improvement that you'll make is like this, like a a little amount. If you're, if you stay within the lines all the time, you're just
0: going to create a change. Okay. So I'm peddling this particular radical thought. First of all, what I know for a fact is that the majority of marketing is utterly, utterly wasted. Frankly, you should spend it on ending world hunger or on lottery tickets. <laughs> you, you'd get, at least you'd get the satisfaction of knowing that maybe there was a fighting chance of some value. Virtually all marketing falls on deaf ears. You think about how your inbox is invaded with corporate marketing that's bland, anodyne, and totally forgettable uh-huh. and ignored. You think about pay-per-click campaigns. $265 billion was spent last year on pay-per-click advertising, got one click or fewer on Google and Facebook. You look at the amount of corporate literature that is peddled out and sent to people who cannot make a decision. And I mean, when was the last time you as a CIO paid any attention to a corporate data sheet and that caused you (laughs) to buy anything? Okay, so we know this market. Never. Exactly, (laughs) okay. We also know that the majority of your channel is utterly useless. We also know that the majority of your salespeople last year we did a, a global research study, a thousand organizations, and what we found was only thirteen one three percent of sales teams globally hit their quota. Forty four percent of individual reps, but only thirteen percent of salespeople. Only six percent of managers were fit for purpose. Okay. Wow. Now, now get this. Okay, radical thought. Take a blank sheet of paper, and redesign your entire marketing lead generation, sales, customer success, and customer account management process, and design it as if you are starting from scratch. You've still got the same budget, all those salaries, all that marketing, all that investment spend, but now you design it as if you're building it from scratch. And you shed, because let's face it, COVID has presented a God-given opportunity to get rid of a lot of the dross, clear out the bottom 50 to 80%, of uh, non-producers, get rid of all the customers from hell straight away and refer them on to your competition because what does my enemy does my, uh, harm does me good. And then recruit and train partners, salespeople, and managers, just like your top performers. Take your time. And in about seven months, you'll be back up to the same revenue level that you would have been anyway, but with 500% more profit. And in 12 months, you'll probably be about 500% more profitable. And what I'm seeing is that what I'm experiencing is quite a lot of pushback with this, uh, because it takes someone brave to do this. But I think the the way companies will get ahead, particularly in this COVID era, is to do precisely that. It's color outside of the lines. Think the impossible. And redesign your entire operation. And understand that marketing, sales, and uh, account management, all of those are one part of a continuum and you also right. need to involve your professional services and your operations and your finance in that restructure because it's an organic entity it's and every moving part if you change one bit it affects the rest of the system so what are your thoughts on that
1: yeah i completely i i i completely agree yeah it gets back to it big transformation points when you're trying to do something when your business model is changing your Products somehow are fundamentally changing. you need to look at the whole system differently. you know you just can't look at hey, my products are are fundamentally changing. go into a whole new business model and we'll maybe tweak lead generation a little bit and that should do right that should do there that that'll go it's not the case it's not the case and and it's interesting you you bring up finance because I'm sure we can all relate in, in companies in our past where some of the the horizontal functions that support all the way across the business are still in a prior business model or still in a prior way of, of doing business. And everybody's trying to move here. And it if you don't have like your finance partners, your HR partners really up to do the change with you, it makes it really a problem because those horizontal functions are kind of the dna of how things of how a company operates and i don't think in most organizations when people understand the need for change and and look at look at it from a whole company approach you've got to bring everybody to the table otherwise what happens It's much slower than it needs to be. It's much more painful than it needs to be. And you're not going to get as far as
0: you wanted, as far in the change as you wanted. Excellent. Okay, so I I think we're pretty much agreed on that. And now have another radical question. Why is it that marketing doesn't speak to customers?
1: (laughs) Well, that's a question. I would would, uh, sort of open it up more broadly why do, well, we'll put it in terms of technology companies, why do technology companies that are trying to sell to customers, why don't they take the time to, to understand customers in general? It's Very not cool. just marketing. It's let's put sales in that mix. Let's put product in that mix. And then, you know, heaven help you if your services team isn't really the, the most sympathetic to the uh, customer plate, then you really have a uh, challenge. But I think it's it's that whole DNA of how do you put, as a company, as a technology company trying to sell to IT organizations, it seems to me like the center of gravity of where you should be is understanding operationally how are your customers working now and how do you make that as easy as possible? Because- well- In the the end, maybe one thing that we want to uh, position with your your listeners is, in the end, if you can make it easier for your customers, they're saving money. (laughs) It's easier to get those new solutions in, and it's easier for them to operate and get value. And if you're working on an ARR model, that's the name of the game.
0: This is also really interesting. I interviewed Tom Showdorff. Few months back, uh, who took Splunk from forty-two million to one point two billion in five years, and I've interviewed Jim Legge at Phycotic, ten million to half a billion in five years. And one of the themes that I see with all of the top sales leaders is they spend a huge amount of their time speaking to customers. They're uh, you know two three conversations a day with customers, and their executive team are speaking to customers. And the companies that are achieving uh, controlled, well-managed type of growth, where they're not having to go out with the begging bowl to private equity and VC, are the ones where they are engaging with their customers. I interviewed a fabulous lady called Amy Brown, who runs a company called Auth Authentics. And they are a customer experience uh, company using AI to track and listen to the small data And Uh it's data from call center conversations, which are unfiltered, unbiased, and they're spontaneous. And what I'm seeing, and coming back to the earlier point about the technology getting between the customer and the the supplier, is all that information is already being captured, particularly under COVID. Virtually every conversation that's happening in the organization can be recorded it can be analyzed. That data from the call centers that Authentics is doing, they they record about a billion conversations a year. And their customers are telling them, uh, their their client, their customer, sorry, their client's customers are telling them exactly what they need and want, what they will buy, what they won't buy, what frustrates the living hell out of them. And I firmly believe that There is a huge opportunity for the smart companies that focus on the small data, not the big data. I I was at a dinner in uh, Christmas last year with Forrester, and their analysts said that only 7% of companies using big data do it well. So most of them haven't got a clue what they're doing. And your customers will tell you how to sell to them, what they want to buy, how to develop the product. So in fact, I think it's Martin Lindstrom has written a very good book called Small Data, which I would strongly recommend any leader uh, in sales to uh, to listen to. What are you teaching your people about listening to the customer?
1: First, before I go there, let me uh, wildly agree with you on uh, customers don't listen or companies uh, don't listen. And, uh, you know, I've, I've had a fair number of conversations around this and it it's messy, you know, it's messy. And, uh, you know, maybe I'll relate this to, uh, product teams where they're looking for some, just give me a list. Give me the two things that I can do that will solve every problem. And until I hear somebody say, here are the two things that solve every problem that you'll see some product teams throw up a lot of roadblocks of, well, I can't do that because you haven't told me here's the silver bullets there's not a silver bullet, but the more, you know, there's never a silver bullet in life, but the more you understand the bigger context, then those nuggets from, from all the customer interactions paint a clear picture of where the customers are trying to go. But it it gets back to my point. You have to be willing to change. You have to be willing to do things differently. And people one of the things i i see now sometimes is people hide behind well the data is not perfect so i'm not going to move that gives me an excuse not to 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 change y- you might as well like start writing your death certificate <laughs> you know your company's death certificate on on that because you've you've got to take those insights filter them into your own worldview. And that's why it's so important for sales folks to get a bigger picture, not just like tunnel into what they're, what they're um, selling this quarter, because it's, it's, it's almost like data, data can be the great enabler or it can be the great excuse of it's not clean yet. It's not perfect yet. I haven't seen the, you know, the, the, the silver bullet from the data yet that, that tells me how to move. So I'm just going to sit here and let the you know let the calendar whiz by and not do anything
0: perfection is the enemy of the good if you are focused on perfection you're wasting 98% of your time to try and get the last 2% stop it there's right. no need to be perfect customers understand but,
1: but but aren't you seeing that i see people hide behind excuses of data when really it's it's scary to move and i just You know, I'm not
0: ready to stick my neck out yet. Again, I think you you know, coming back to your earlier point about coloring outside of the lines, a life without risk is a life without growth. Mm -hmm. And I don't think people are willing to take the risk because they're punished for taking risks. Uh, when they don't work out, I remember working with a property company uh, years back, and we were recruiting um, a marketing director for them. And uh, you know, throughout the interview process, we explained how important it was to experiment and test and see what works. And the CFO said something that just blew me away in terms of its stupidity. And I knew it wasn't going to work out at that point. Said, "Well, you know, we'd like you to run the test, but um, can you not run the ones that don't work?" <laughs> seriously and he meant it. that's the worst thing and uh, you know, we placed a really good marketing director with them and he was hampered at every corner because they wouldn't spend the money on testing and the net result of that was they had no idea what they were doing and they continued to drift and um, it was shameful tell me this what are you struggling with what are you wrestling with at the moment well we are Palo
1: Alto, we're we're transitioning from a spectacularly successful single product company to a multi-product SaaS company. And with all the all the inherent challenges, pitfalls, roadblocks that you would expect in that. So it's the breadth of our portfolios increasing, moving from hard, you know, a very hardware-centric company to Yes, hardware, but hosted in SaaS and and much more on the SaaS side, and that changes. So when I was mentioning it's a whole of company shift, I was really that was a very personal comment in in what we're doing at uh, Palo Alto because we've got to shift that whole model to more of that SaaS model from again a spectacularly successful single hardware product uh, company, which is is where the organization grew. So. Sales needs to change. Marketing needs to change. Our, our post-sales experience with GCS needs to change. Finance, HR, what are we hiring for? It's, it's, it's everything. And, uh, you know, it's, it's that shift is actually what drew me to the company because I've been here a year now because I just find that fascinating. But I mean, I think you see from my background, I'm more of a roll the dice kind of, uh, Person, I find those big changes where it's like, we know where we're trying to go. We're not going to get there until we jump off the cliff. Let's jump off the cliff with a plan and move, move uh, forward. So uh, it's we're moving very fast. We had a great Q4, which I can talk about now, given we already announced it to the uh, street. So, you know, we're in that enviable challenge place of big growth so you're trying to hold on you know you have a tiger by the tail relative to the growth and you're trying to keep pace with that continue to deliver spectacularly for customers but you need to drive this other transformation and this broader business model transformation because the company's not going to move unless you know the post sales world and in, in deployments adoptions are, are really there so we have a big Stake in in what's going on with the company, but I find it fascinating.
0: That so. sounds like a lot of fun, bit of adrenaline, and uh, maybe the odd sleepless night. Uh, <laughs> I have someone I'm going to introduce you to who I think might be very beneficial. And uh, he manages those change programs. And he's got a 96% success rate. Um, oh, wow. Uh, implementing global change programs. So he's done it for the likes of Fujitsu, Sapporo, and various others. So I'll introduce you to him. How are you finding people responding to that change? Because if you've um, you know, been immensely successful as you have, being this single product company, and all of a sudden people who grew up with that and now facing this change, and they're you know are you facing a lot of pushback and grumbles from the old traditionalists? There were some grumbles when we started introducing
1: because people didn't even know me, and 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 I join, and it's like oh we got to go. <laughs> TikTok people, we got to move. And uh, there were some, I would say, especially my second quarter here when we really started to make some uh, shifts and the the things that were most visible were moving all of the professional services to outcome-based. We started attaching services to the products to make sure that we were able to get the customers over the line. And uh, I can uh, actually specifically recall the conversations where I was introducing that to uh, some of our yes. broader company-wide leadership team. I got the WTF, Patty. <laughs> You're going to break us. And it's not the first time I've heard it. And I said, trust me, trust me. This is this works. Swear to God, trust me. And knock on wood, luckily, the, so that was those really pointed conversations were in November, by January, we're already feeling the positive impact with customers. And then, you know, the thing that really, and I'm a big fan of never let in a, a crisis go to waste. Absolutely. The pandemic is as terrible as it is really helped drive a lot of the transformations that we had successes with how fast we're able to move this past fiscal year. So we're on a August to August fiscal year. Because if we, what I pointed out to folks quite frequently, if we hadn't had that conversation in November when I got the, Patty, are you insane? Are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. Started rolling it out in January with positive customer influences. And then the thing that happened was if we, not to go into details, but if we hadn't done that, we would not have been able to support the incredible growth that was coming at us with the whole shelter in place and and customers trying to secure their employees as they were working from home. And I have used that point that, hey, if we hadn't taken that, we planned, but if we hadn't taken that leap of faith, oh my goodness, we would not have been able to keep pace with the business that was coming in in the um, spring.
0: So, What a fabulous object
1: lesson. Um, right, right. But it's like, use the crisis. And, and this thing absolutely. is going to roll on for a while longer, this whole uh, pandemic. So there's opportunities. Look at the opportunity in it to drive your company forward
0: faster. Tell me this. What are you being influenced by? What are you reading, watching, listening to that you think is really powerful stuff? Well, this is in a in
1: a completely different direction. I love Michelle Obama's podcast. Oh, all right. I find it, it's a podcast follow-up to her uh, book, but, but somehow I just find it's like so piercingly insightful and I find that calming, <laughs> <laughs> especially with, with uh, everything that she's seen. So that's, that's my favorite new
0: thing recently. Excellent. So Michelle Obama's podcast. Let, yes. Tell me this, if you, if you had a golden ticket and you could whisper in the ear of the idiot Patty age 23, <laughs> what choice uh, of advice would you give her?
1: Uh, the idiot, Patty. You know, I can't say I have any regrets. I just don't hold on to things like that. So I'll, I'll maybe put it in a different way. I would say take up op- every opportunity that comes your way. Every opportunity that comes your way. I know there are, there are a number of people out there that might relate to this, that are listening to your podcast of, you know, Career planners, and I want to go from point A to point B, so I'm not going to leave point A until I find that exact point B role that I'm looking for. I don't know whether it's just my life or you know, maybe it's more indicative of life in general, but nothing comes that neatly bundled. And I just think you have to be open to every opportunity that comes your way. And I I hearken back to my fabulous first manager that I ever had in Bell Labs that gave me the opportunity to roll to move to Europe when the sum total of my European experience, part of that was four days in Munich on (laughs) vacation when I finished grad school.
0: (laughs) And was it in October?
1: No, no, it was in the summer. It was in the summer. If I had looked at every reason why not to go, not clear metrics. What if I fail? You know, it was a billion reasons. Don't know anybody. What country am I moving to? Because he just said, go to Europe, build a business, then come back. (laughs) If you let yourself be encumbered too much by all the things that can go wrong, as opposed to I'll learn a ton. It'll be a great experience. And how bad can that be? Um, I would have never have gone and that would have set me on a completely different course. So I, I just tell folks, take every opportunity. The more, the more different it is, the better.
0: I couldn't agree more. I've, I've found, I've worked in nearly 500 segments of the market um, doing what I do for the last 18, uh, 17, 18 years and beyond. And I've found that, that breadth of exposure has allowed me to have not only uh, breadth but also perspective. Right. And I'm able to draw. You know, I, I've worked in everything from mm-hmm. naked platters and female fantasy fulfillment coaching and matchmaking and spiritualism. <laughs> uh, <to selling laughs> that would be a systems, podcast spooks. in and of itself. Yeah, sure. yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, selling comm systems for spooks, every hue and color of software, hardware, service on the planet. And... Being able to draw from all of those experiences and create the connections is incredibly potent. Right. Patty. thank you so much. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I cannot wait for our next one. Fantastic. I loved it as well. Excellent. Patty Hatter, thank you so much. How can people get hold of you?
1: Easiest way is LinkedIn and uh, Twitter. So... Uh... In LinkedIn, it was, uh, I was feeling formal that day. So it's Patricia Hatter, you'll find me there. And on uh, Twitter, at Patty Hatter.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then please get in touch. with are at at me.com or marcus at laughs-last.com. And if you've particularly enjoyed the podcast, then please like, comment, and share and subscribe. And if you think you'd be a great guest or you know someone who would, then please get in touch as well. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.